the book of Revelations. Had a lot of questions since I started last week in the book of Revelations and talking about different things happening. And uh, they asked questions like, well, is the Battle of Armageddon coming then? Like right away. Um, when is the rapture going to be? Can Christians be, can uh, people besides Jews be saved during the rapture? Is anybody going to be saved during the rapture? A lot of questions that people have, and they're going to be answered over the next few weeks while we're in the book of Revelations. But the Battle of Armageddon isn't until the end of the tribulation period. The tribulation period is going to be the last seven years of planet Earth as we know it in a horrible, wrathful time of God. With, uh, God's going to pour out His wrath upon the world for not receiving His Son. And at the end of that time, we're going to be coming with Him. It's before the tribulation period begins that there's the rapture of the church. That day, that hour, we have no idea when. The stage has already been set, just like Devin was singing in the song. Man, the days of thunder, they're here. They could happen right now. At any moment, the Lord could come back. All the promises for that have been completed. As a matter of fact, of all the uh, thousands, literally, of prophecies in the Bible, they've all been fulfilled except for uh, a handful of them. Literally, I think I haven't counted them up exactly, but there's only about 30 or 40 prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. The only thing that really hasn't been fulfilled yet is the rapture of the church and uh, all the things that take period during the tribulation period. So really all the prophecies that are fulfilled concerning you here tonight, if you're a Christian, the only one that you haven't experienced yet is the rapture of Jesus Christ. All the other prophecies are concerning that horrible time of the tribulation period. And one of the reasons he's writing the book of Revelations is to warn the church who has fallen into sleep to wake up, to watch, as Jesus said, and be ready for that second coming of Jesus Christ. And so he's warning us in the book of Revelations. And last week we looked at the first part and we saw there in verse 1 that he says these things are going to be coming shortly to take place. And uh, again, in the Greek language, things aren't always as clear as they are. Uh, they're a little clearer than the English language. And the word shortly here is not, in other words, short an amount of time, as in a period of time passing. It's more of shortly as in an expedient amount of time once it begins. The Bible, one of the signs of the times was that knowledge would increase. I believe that you look in the last hundred years, it's amazing. People have gone from walking, on, walking and riding horses to uh, Concord jets that can get you to the other side of the world or uh, a spaceship to get you to the moon. It's amazing how much knowledge has increased in the last 92 years. Israel becoming a nation in 1948 and to see all that's taken place there. It's happening quickly. Three years ago, European common markets said they were going to be getting together and forming it. By 1993, they said they would have that alliance. They had it in 92, and now here we are in 93, and it's before 93 is even going to be here, it's already going to be finished. They said no later than 99, they're going to have a 
economic currency for all of Europe. But what's going to happen is the economic status of the whole world is going to go down the tubes and the Antichrist is going to be stepped in. And I do not believe the church is going to be here at that time, which is any day. It's not going to take but a two months for the entire world's economy to collapse. It's not like it's going to take 10 years for everything to fall apart. It doesn't work that way. Everything could fall apart overnight. There is three major earthquakes in the world. The world couldn't help each other out. You have one devastating earthquake in Mexico City. It takes just about all of the world pulling together just to help them out. But if we had a San Francisco earthquake and a Mexico City earthquake and a Philippines earthquake and a one of the biggest faults was back in Nashville, Tennessee, back in another part of the United States. And the Bible tells us that these things are going to happen. That the economics of the world could plunder overnight. And of course, Japan's always uh, having tremors. That's just earthquakes. That's not talking about the other kinds of signs of the times and the hardships that's going to come upon, upon planet Earth. I'm just so thankful that I'm going to not be here to have to suffer during that time. And so when it comes, it's going to come quick. And to think that your heart is going to be able to be softened during that time, if it's not soft now towards the Lord, is a joke. Either you're ready now or you're not ready now. For you to predict the future and say, I don't want to make Jesus Christ first in my life, but I plan on it. Once I start having kids, you know, kids should be raised in the church and then I'm really going to get right. Or, you know, in a few months from now, I'm going, to, I'm going to start doing things right. Or maybe next week, or maybe even tomorrow, you cannot put your stake in the future in that way. How do you know if the Lord isn't coming back tonight? Yesterday, I was on my way up to speak at Maranatha, and cruising along in the traffic, and I was listening to the tape, and I was jotting some notes down on a piece of paper, which I shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> the traffic stopped, and I didn't. <laughs> I look up and I slam on my brakes just in time to barely bump the guy in front of me. His rear end was already tweaked. But he wouldn't tell you that. But I'll tell you, when, it's like you're in a dream. When that happens, it's like, ah! It's craziness. It's like, you're out of body experience almost. You're just sort of watching yourself in this nightmare. No one knows the day or the hour. No one knows if you're going to even be around when the rapture comes. You may have already died. The Bible says it's appointed every man to die once and after, after that judgment. And if you think life is long here, you just live another couple years. You see how short life really is. And we see there in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, they have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. The Bible says when the Lord comes again with the great host of witnesses, us as saints, that everyone's going to behold Jesus, those on the earth, those under the earth, those up in heaven with him, and everybody's knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to fess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will eventually humble yourself and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. I just pray it's not too late. And then he goes on to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Lord has always been 
and shall always be. God does not need man. Matter of fact, God in and of himself is completely sufficient. We learn in of Maslow's hierarchies of needs. We need a lot of things as humans to survive. If a baby comes out of the womb and is not hugged in the first few moments after coming out of the womb and for some reason rejected by the mother or this kind of thing you hear about children and trash cans and these horrible things, but if a baby when it comes out of the womb is not immediately cuddled and hugged and talked to in the first few moments of give, after it's born, it puts on this system of rejection and after that it doesn't matter what you do, it's going to die. It will not let you hug it. It will not let you feed it. It just clams up and dies. Because we need love. We need acceptance. And I think that if you live long enough, you'll find that even acceptance by your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse, acceptance from your friends, acceptance from your family, you'll find it's not enough. That there'll still be a longing in your heart for, for acceptance from the Almighty. But God needs nothing. He doesn't need warmth. He doesn't need love. He doesn't need air. But God wants you. The Bible says, according to the good pleasure of His will, He chooses you. God desires you to be in heaven. It's God's wish that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But as Adam in the garden to every man that's ever been born, you have a free choice. You and your own stubborn will, your own rebellious rejection can say, either actively, I don't want God, or passively, "Ah, maybe later. Either way, you have rejected Him. And the Bible says that if you are faithless, He remains faithful. If you come to God, He's going to make up for all your weaknesses. But He says in the very next verse, If you deny Me, I will deny you. There is a clear and a sharp cutoff. If you come to God, He'll accept you as you are. He will not judge you. He will love you. In all your weaknesses and all your sins and all your failures, He will make up the difference through His grace and His love and His mercy. But if you choose to either actively or passively reject God, He will reject you and have no problem of it. And if you think that God is only a loving God and there is not a just side of Him, when you stand before that great white throne of judgment, you are going to be shocked how God can reject men. And we see Jesus even prophesying of Himself how He says to these people, Be gone! you doers of iniquity into outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, to be ever separated from God and to be forever with the devil and his angels. God wants you tonight. He doesn't need you. To me, that's the greatest compliment the Lord can give us. He wants us. But you have to make that choice of opening up that door of your heart to have him come in. And tonight we are in verse 9, and he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom of patience and of Jesus Christ, was on the island that's called Pathmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Eusebius, which was a church historian, said that actually after killing the other apostles, that they tried to kill John. Now he's in his later years. He's the oldest of the apostles. Most of them didn't live but a few years before they were killed martyred for their faith. John living older, but 
They tried to boil him in oil, Eusebius says, and he wouldn't boil. So they tried to bake him, I guess, out on the island of Paphmos. I don't know. And they put him out there to um, just completely exile him there in the Mediterranean, out on a very rocky uh, island there. John is known as the beloved disciple. He's actually known to have a very intimate relationship with Jesus Christ more than others. He was always there right next to Jesus, hearing everything he said. Always putting his head on Jesus' breast, saying, Lord, what is it you said again? <laughs> was it me? He always had a word to put in as he was right next to Jesus Christ. Peter and some of the others said, Oh Lord, we'll never forsake you. We'll be right there. But at the foot of the cross were only women and one man, John. And he spoke to John and said, Hey, take care of my mom, would you? There as Jesus had risen from the dead and he was trying to talk to Peter, telling him to concentrate on feeding the sheep of God. John was back there and I don't know if Peter was jealous or what, but he said, what about this guy? And Jesus basically uh, says to him, what is it to you if he lives until I come again? And so there was a rumor through the early church that John was going to live forever until the Lord came again. And Jesus didn't say that at all. That's what the people said that Jesus said. Jesus was just telling Peter, mind your own business. But yet they changed that around. So it was ironic because John ended up living to be an older man. And then when he, tradition says he was boiled in oil, the rumor even continued farther. saying, oh yeah, he's not going to die. You can't kill him until Jesus comes again. And so uh, the day or the hour, I don't know, just hang on to John because uh, when he goes, we all go. But uh, it wasn't that at all. And so there while he was on this island... It says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, I don't know exactly what John experienced here, but in some form he entered it into a, a spiritual realm, into a spiritual time machine where things were sped up and he was taken into the future and this first century man is going to try to explain what we probably barely could understand here in the 20th century. And he says there, as he heard this loud, thunderous voice as a trumpet, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Perga. Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to, his, to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. What a radical revelation. It burned in his mind. When he saw this picture of Christ in his glorified state, it just he saw it there just for a moment, but yet every single aspect of it was singed in his mind. 
It's radical to think that Jesus lived for 33 years and all the people that wrote books about Jesus, not one of them were able to give a physical description of Jesus Christ. He was five foot, foot ten. He was a buff carpenter looking guy with brown wavy hair. He parted in the middle and had a little alfalfa cow lick in the back or something. I don't know. It didn't say anything about him. Not once. Now in the Old Testament, God didn't give them any symbols at all. You see the Star of David. That's not from the Bible. He actually had given them, at one time when the people were being disobedient, he gave them a rod with a snake on top of it. And if they looked at that bronze image, the snakes that would bite them, they would be able to live through this poisonous uh, attack. But nevertheless, even that they took and they began to worship it. God didn't give them any symbols because they worshipped it. And there's no doubt in my mind, if we had an idea of what Jesus Christ was like, there would be all kinds of statues, all kinds of emblems of the picture of Christ that people would actually worship that picture. They would kiss the statue of his foot. They'd kiss his hand or they'd have a picture of him and they'd kiss it. People don't even have an idea. I mean, they, there's all kinds of pictures of Jesus. Most popular one in America is the Calif Southern California looking Jesus. <laughs> Brown hair and blue eyes and, you know, the surfer like he got out of surfing and the wind blew dry, blew dry his hair, you know. And, and he's got this angelic look like, hey, dudes, surf up. Or, <clears throat> <laughs> you go into a black church, you'll see a black Jesus. You go to China, you see a Chinese-looking Jesus. Nobody knows what he really looks like, but I suppose if he were to have an idea of what he'd look like, it would be nothing like an American. The Jewish culture itself is actually from the Oriental. If you wanted to go study on Jewish religion, you'd have to go to the Oriental section in the library. And so it would be a darker skin with a little bit of an oriental look, with a dark hair. We don't really know what he looks like and good reason for it. But here we do have the only description the Bible gives and it's a hair-raising description. He's in the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands we're going to find out down in verse 29 is actually the churches. So neat to know that Jesus is standing in the midst of the church. The Bible said where two or three are gathered together in his name, he'd be in our midst. And we see there that his clothes with garment down to his feet, he's girded about with a gold band. His head and his hair, notice this, was white like wool, which is a description again of the purity of Christ. His eyes like a flame of fire. Literally, it's like shooting blazes of fire. Talking about indignation. He's angry. Something's bothering him. He's upset. And there we see his voice like the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to Yosemite or to a place where there's some great waterfalls. There's no greater bass sound that's thunderous than the many waters. That get in a place where you can hear the great crashing of waves. His voice was a very powerful sound, but yet the presence of that sound is so awesome. It's so soothing. 
It's so powerful, it's so loud, it's so thunderous, but yet it's so soothing. And so his voice, although it was loud, although it was powerful, there's no doubt when the voice of Jesus spoke, it was a beautiful sense of God's presence. And then we see in his right hand are the seven stars, which is the messenger sent to the churches. In his mouth a sharp, two-edged sword regarding judgment to come. So he has the messengers. He is going to tell us what's coming in the future and the judgment concerning that future. And there he says in verse 17, as he fell down dead, that he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Does that scare you? When you hear that phrase, I have the keys of Hades and of death. If you're a Christian here tonight, that should comfort you. Because Jesus says, I, if you come to me, I have you in my hand and I lose none. Nothing can snatch them out of my Father's hand for he is greater than I. And I and the Father are one. But all those who are in my hand, I shall raise them up on that last day. In Romans 8, it said that we are more than conquerors because He loves us. And neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing would be able to separate us from the love of Christ. So the fact that Christ has the keys to me means that I'm not going there unless He personally puts me there. And I know that he's already told me that if I receive him, that he would raise me up on that last day and he would not put me there. But there are people in their mind who have an idea that God is only putting people in hell who are the horrible people. People who hurt other people. I saw in the Waltons, good family entertainment. The mom was trying to get the dad down to the evangelist meetings. And boy, the evangelist went into all the bars and he was screaming at everybody and everybody was, you know, grabbed their beer and walked into the bathroom and, you know, it's just sort of this weird picture. And finally it rained and the dad got hit by lightning, the whole scene. And so he goes to church. And there they're just hoping, you know, dad gets in and the preacher starts have an invitation for people to come forward and a few people come and then he points at people that he saw in the bar and scares them and boy then they come forward and finally he got Mr. Walton you know and he just pointed at him and started yelling at him he got up and walked out and he just said look man I love everything God made and love the trees and I know God's made the trees and love my family and I know God's given me my family and you know, I like to drink a little and smoke a little and I like to swear a little. You know, and I just think God likes all that. I don't think it bothers Him at all. I'm a good man. And I know God understands that. And His wife says, Oh, I know you're a good man and I know that there's a place in heaven for you too because you're such a good person. Dream on. Only on television can people appear that way. There is none good, the Bible says, no, not 
one. Our hearts are desperately, deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. The Bible clearly says there is one way, one truth, and one life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ, having repented of your sins and having a personal relationship with Him. There is no one who is going to make it to heaven who does not have a firm commitment in following Jesus Christ. When the multitudes were following Jesus, He stopped them and He tried to clarify to them, Look it, just because you're following me right now does not mean you're a part of my kingdom. Let me tell you that if you truly want to follow me, you're going to have to first deny yourself. Secondly, take up your cross and then you can follow me. In another place he turns and says, unless you are abiding in my word, then you will not know the truth. And that truth will not set you free. You have to come to Jesus with a full heart of commitment to Him. It's not anybody going to be slipping in through those pearly gates. You're going to be there because of a very definite intent on God's part and a very definite intent on your part. I remember as my grandfather, who was raised in the southern part of the world and most of his life he lived a pretty wild life in his older years he couldn't really get out and about and gave him a bible and he had been reading it for a couple of years and when television came on he'd try to find his ball games at a billy graham was on oh that'd be sacrilegious to turn it now i gotta watch billy graham and so he had a type of fear of god and i remember writing a very long letter to him saying, Grandpa, you can't just like Jesus and expect and consider that to be a Christian. You've got to make a full commitment in your heart to make Him the Lord of your life. My grandfather read that letter. My grandmother said uh, for days on end for a long time. I believe my grandfather made that commitment according to what they told me before he died. But I'll tell you right now, if you are here tonight and you have never made an absolute firm commitment, those keys, the power of putting you in hell is in the grasp of Jesus Christ. And he's not shy or sheepish about telling us who it is who's going to make it there who it is who's going to be going to hell. And he tells us very clear and very plainly that if you are not 100% for him, then you are against him. If you have not made a firm commitment in your heart to make him the Lord of your life, and if today you are not following him with your whole heart, there is no future for you in heaven. The Bible says not to fear him who can destroy the body, referring to devil but destroy him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You need to have a fear of God tonight. There's not a lot of that left in the world. There's rarely a movie that's out that does not make fun of Christianity or God in some way. I saw a little clip on the TV the other day for this baseball movie. These girls are in the baseball movie. I don't know the name of it. 
But in it, Tom Hanks was praying. And he said, let me pray first. And he says, you know, God, you know, and he starts this very sacrilegious prayer. And he says, and God, I pray for that little waitress down at the last stop. And I know that she knows you well because the whole time we were having sex, she kept saying your name. No fear of God in their eyes. And so there's no doubt in my mind that you and your children today are being clearly set up to have no fear of God. And if you have not made a definite choice to make Jesus Lord of your life here tonight and you can just very relaxedly think, well, I'm not surprised, but I definitely fear for you that that opportunity of receiving Christ may slip by. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands. Well, the seven stars, he says, are the angels or the agalos, which is often translated the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And next week we're going to be looking at the first church, the church of Ephesus, which literally means, the word Ephesus is the Greek word which means to relax your grip and to let go, which is clearly what the church in the latter times is going to do. The Bible says in the last days there's going to be a great falling away of the church. That doesn't mean a great falling away in attendance It means a great falling away in people's hearts. Actually, I think in the last days there's going to be a greater church attendance, but yet a fewer remnant of people who have really committed their heart to Jesus Christ. You see it across America. These super churches with thousands upon thousands of people, but yet you hear the messages and they're absolute heresy. Why is that? But yet you can find the people in the church, as we're going to see the next week of the church of Ephesus, oh, they had the perfect right doctrine. They were able to point out all the false apostles and the false prophets. They were able to say who was teaching right doctrine and who wasn't. But yet they had no love in their heart for God or for the lost and dying world. The words of Paul, the love of Christ constrains me, was not constraining them. They had lost that love. They had no constraint to care about the lost and dying world around them. Wanting to be educated in right doctrine, wanting to be entertained, but yet not having that sharp edge of the love of Christ ruling and reigning their lives and guiding their every thought and their every motive. The Bible says in the last days men would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It says wanting for their ears to be tickled They would seek out teachers after themselves. And it says there would be doctrines of demons searing men's hearts. Actually, as we come to the last days, the thing that we see more clearly than anything is that men are no longer willing to receive receive Christ. I do believe that the church is going to be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation period. But as I read about the end times, 
it seems like the hearts of the people are so far from God that it's only a small remnant that are truly having faith in Christ. Jesus says to the his own followers, watch and be ready. Don't let that day overtake you as a thief in the night. Another parable he told them about praying that they would never lose heart. And at the end of that prayer, he says, but when the Son of Man returns, will he really find faith on earth? It's going to be in such small proportions. The love of many is going to grow cold because evil is going to abound. Are you taking to your bosom the evil and the pleasure and the rebellion of this world? Are you living on that sharp edge of Christianity and serving the Lord? You may have been considering yourself a Christian for some time, but ask yourself tonight, do I really have a love in my heart for those who I know who are not Christians? Or have I learned to accept them as non-Christians and accepted them as going to hell is no great pressure upon me because I'm not going there. Why is it the love of Christ doesn't constrain you to care, to be concerned? There's something wrong. Often the church, and we'll see the church of Ephesus, is like that great pond who takes in the water without an outflow of a river from it. And what happens to that pond is it gets larger, but it gets stagnant. The love of Christ is what constrains us. The love of Christ is what motivates us to cause rivers to come out of the wealth of knowledge and experience and insight and relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Christ is coming with purity. He's coming with fiery eyes of indignation. He's upset from the apostolic church in the early days and all its purity to an apostate church before his coming. And a sword in his mouth, judgment is coming to the world. Which side do you rest on tonight? Are those keys opening up the gates of hell to cast you in? Or are they already locked, keeping you out? Where do you stand tonight? They tell you today in seminaries not to ever bring up hell. It's such a negative subject. Be positive. Christ talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible because it's a reality. Spurgeon said, and he had one of the best Bible schools of all times, said that actually if I could just take the men who wanted to go in the ministry, and if I had the capacity, all I would do is take them and dangle them over hell for five minutes and then set them on the streets of London to preach. If you could get the clear knowledge that people are going to burn in a lake of fire forever and ever where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in a place of complete darkness, the only reason they have eyes is to see that the place is completely dark that you cannot see. The only reason they have teeth is not to eat, but something to clench down on because of the intense pain. The word is actually torment, that of dripping of acid. We see a small picture of it where Lazarus and the rich man and the rich man who had gone into hell and he sees it there in Sheol before the uh, Jesus Christ had set captive 
the righteous, and now they're in paradise with him. But before that time, the man was tormented. He said, please let Lazarus dip his pinky in some water and dip it upon my tongue, for this place I'm at is in torment. It's dripping of acid here. I wish I could give you a clear picture of that. In Luke, he says that those who are not ready shall be taken and bound and chopped in pieces and then thrown into the lake of fire. Another description of in Luke is people are going to be coming, waiting in this incredible line of judgment. And there behind them is heaven in all its glory. And actually they see the saints on the other side of those pearly gates, enjoying the pleasures of heaven. And at the same time, talking to Jesus, but out the corner of their eye, they see the glory to come. And then they hear the rejection of Christ. Be gone, you person. Many shall say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, be gone, you dirge iniquity. Don't call me Lord. Why do you say Lord? But yet I'm not the Lord of your life. I don't tell you. You don't ask me in the morning. You don't pray in the morning. God govern my day. You don't. Read my word and let it be the lamp unto your feet and the light unto your path. You use your own way. You lean on your own knowledge. You lean on your own understanding. Don't call me Lord. You're not. I was never the Lord of your life. Eighty percent of America claims to be Christian. I will put a zillion dollar bet on eighty percent of America if they were to die right now would not be in heaven with the Lord. But when we're talking about eighty percent of America, we very quickly could say eighty percent of the people here tonight. Is Jesus Christ in word only the Lord of your life? Or is he in the Lord of your thoughts? Is he in the Lord of your actions? The Bible says that when a person comes to Christ, he loves God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, all his strength. Is that what took place in your life when you made that commitment to Christ? Christ is coming again. And if not, you're going to be standing before him. I don't know which is going to be worse, the lake of fire or seeing a little glimpse of heaven and then be separated for eternity from Christ. Are you ready? This may be the last chance I get to say this to you. Are you ready? We're going to be leaving in just five minutes from now. But are you ready? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I need you, God. And I thank you that although you don't need me, you want me. I feel so special in that way. And Lord, I know that there are people who feel they have power after death, power of their own goodness. Houdini preached for years that he was going to be able to control death. Once he died, he would be able to escape the clutches of death. But the master magician could not do it. Lord, we know that men in their own pride wants to love pleasure, love leisure rather than you. And we just ask in Jesus' name tonight that our hearts would be touched by your spirit and by your word. You said your word would go forth and we wouldn't return void, but accomplish that work it was sent out to do. Tonight, if you're here, God's clearly speaking to you. I'd like you to raise your hand right now and say, yes, God spoke to me clearly tonight of making a firm commitment to him.
Raise your hand right now. Thank you, sis. Is there anybody else? Thank you. Raise your hand up right now, hi, if there's any others. Thank you. Here's a very simple prayer. And I'd like you to pray this and believe on your heart, the Lord Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't want to be deceived like so much of the world, thinking if I know about you, that if I'm not against you, that that's salvation. Lord, I come tonight to surrender my life to you, to make a full commitment to follow you. Lord Jesus, help me. I feel separated from you right now. Lord, I confess my sins that I am a sinner. And Lord, forgive me for not making a full commitment to surrender my life to you. I do now. And Lord, I thank you that you want me. I thank you that you're for me. And I thank you that if I come to you, even if I am faithless, that you'll remain faithful. And Lord, I surrender my life to you now in full commitment. Jesus, take my life. I want tomorrow to start a brand new life in you, a life of full commitment of following you. Lord, just speaking to me right now, where Jesus turned to the Jews and said that you're like the people in the marketplace. We play a funeral dirge and you do not cry. We play a dance tune and you will not dance. That you keep your heart in neutral. You're unwilling to allow the Holy Spirit to break you. Are you willing to be broken by God? This is what Jesus in the message in Revelation comes. Saying, break your heart, man. Turn and change. Repent. Allow a new life to be breathed into you. Repent tonight, I pray, that refreshing and times of refreshing would come.